You're listening to Conversion Nations, the podcast that helps conversion optimizers overcome challenges they face with their experimentation programs. Brought to you by Effective Experiments, the workflow and project management software helping optimizers make experimentation a core part of their business. Scale up your testing program with a centralized solution and document all your research, ideas, experiments, and results in one place. Learn more and request your free trial by visiting EffectiveExperiments.com. And now, your host, Manuel DaCosta. Hey, welcome to Conversion Nations, the podcast where we talk about conversion optimization with thought leaders in the industry. Thought leaders? You call yourself that? No. Great, so this is episode five, and uh, we've sort of hit a stride now. We've got some regulars on the show. We've got Chad Sonson back again, um, and Tim Stewart from DRS Digital joining us again. So this is uh, becoming a regular thing now, guys. And you know, we talked about the, the, the session before, and I think in this session, what we decided to cover was experiment design. And we also try to figure out how this podcast, the structure of this podcast is going to work. And we, we looked at, you know, what's currently working in the industry, uh, you know, the, the pitfalls or the myths and the bad practices, and then also talking about why that may be happening. And then finally, kind of revealing the, the good practices that people should follow. So it's not just about, you know, ranting about uh, stuff that's wrong, but also giving people actionable advice that they can walk away with and put into practice almost immediately in their business. Are we all in agreement about that? Yeah, yeah. sounds like a plan. Great, so let's start with experiment design. Uh, how would you define, uh, how would you define that like right now? Tim, do you want to go for that? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, it's, I, what we're doing here with any of this is, is just trying to understand uh, what we can change to change the uh, the patterns of behavior, the, uh, the results that we're getting from those patterns of behavior. Fundamentally, as a business, we, we see numbers we don't like and we want to look to change them. Um, so conversion optimization as a, as a whole suite of things you have to take into account of is, is many things. It's investigating, it's working out why, it's thinking through the factors that might be doing that, it's looking at your proposition, uh, the wider piece. When we talk about experiments, we tend to be th talk, thinking about sort of A-B tests because that tends to be the kind of the, what people use almost as a, a pseudonym for conversion optimization. Um, but I think part of the reason I started off by mentioning the, the wider picture than just testing is because you know, your experiment design starts further out than just what variants can I change? You know, what, what pictures can I do? What can I wireframe up? You're looking to uh, challenge a business question, challenge a, uh, a negative situation in terms of numbers and trial different things um, which would make an effect, make the user behave differently to improve those numbers. And by improve, we generally mean go up, but you know, we'll talk about the sort of negative situations. In some cases, we may improve the cost of something. Um, one of the conversations I was having earlier on with somebody was talking about um, reducing the hours or testing which hours live chat options are shown in or, sh or reducing when the uh, customer service phone number is shown on a website, which may seem negative. You know, yeah. We're going to lose sales because of that. But if it increases your cost of sale for something like a live chat, then testing how much you can get away with not having live chat and therefore having fewer high cost of sale sales might actually be something you're trading off. It might be the business problem you're trying to solve. 
So if we talk about experiment design, I'd go back to the point of what business problem you're trying to solve. So before you even start thinking about what you can change, what the variance would look like, what metrics are, start at the very basis of what we're trying to solve. Can this be broken into component parts? Do we have a part of the website single or multiple which would affect that outcome? And then you can start going into, well, within those pages, within those touch points where the user is going to do, what are the things that are going to influence a change of behavior? And then you go from, well, if, if those things are going to influence a change of behavior, how would we measure that behavior? Because there's certain stuff you can measure and certain stuff you can't measure. So I clicked on something, fine. I felt happier about your brand, little trickier to do. It's fluffy. But that's sometimes that is the experiment that people try to design. So we didn't get a clear exact, we didn't get a clear result on this test. What was the test? Do people like us more? That's too ethereal to measure with web metrics. So you have to look for a proxy and you have to decide on the proxy. And you may find that designing a test and picking a metric that you feel represents a change in fluffy behavior may give you no clear results not because it's a bad test or bad variant idea, but because the metric you chose as the proxy for what you're trying to provoke is completely irrelevant. It doesn't actually show what you think it's gonna show. So experiment design will come into kind of more the nitty gritty of actually doing an A-B test, I guess, later on. But for me, it starts out with why are you doing the experiment in the first place? What, what numbers do you need to shift? And what things that users do within your site shift those numbers? Because that's the kind of the, the platform from which you're going to build. If you don't have an understanding of that, if you haven't got your, you know, your test tubes and your bench set out correctly to do that experiment, it doesn't matter what you mix inside those test tubes. You're not going to get the full result. One of the uh, things I've seen uh, in people talking about setting up experiments is they're almost always setting it up with the aim of that experiment winning rather than the aim of an experiment like trying to learn from that experiment, right? I think that's yeah. like the wrong approach in that way. Um, because essentially it's, uh, who, who, there was a saying somewhere, I can't remember who said that, but um, um, if you set up an experiment, if you've set up an experiment with the end in mind and you know the end in mind, it's not an experiment. I can't remember who said that. I'll probably find that later and put them in the show notes. But uh, Chad, what's your take on that? No, yeah, I think that that's um, that's a, a pretty good a pretty good summary of the issue. So, so and we've kind of mentioned this before, but experiments are not exclusive to optimization, and they're certainly not exclusive to to marketing in general. They, you know, they're used to determine everything: uh, policy decisions, economic decisions, um, all sort of like technological and AI decisions. Yeah. And the first the first thing that a a scientist or a researcher has to do is think of an interesting question that if they get a particular answer to it will actually result in an interesting outcome and you can't just be designing random studies uh in a university because they cost money you have to get an investment you have to maybe get an endowment it takes time you have to pay people to do it so the way that a a, a real scientist structures a test has to be like if there is a result here and we think that there's going to be a result, it's going to be important. People are going to care about it. We're going to get published in studies or any of these things. And I think that optimizers need to take a similar approach to designing tests. If, if there is a result, is it going to be something that, that impacts the business in, a, in, a, in a some way? If I think exactly like you said, there are some people who build these tests out and they think like, okay, well, I'm going to get a lot more clicks on, on something. Or I'm going to get a lot more people to 
visit this page or or whatever. And the question that you have to ask is, well, what does that what does that do? What is the what is the relevance of that for the business? Is it just are you just sort of moving a needle back and forth, or are you affecting a particular outcome? So I I work in e-commerce mainly, and I think um, you guys do too. So for me personally, my fundamental goal is always is always revenue. It's always making money. Everything kind of ties back into that. And depending on the industry you're in, that's going to change. But I think there needs to be something that, that grounds us experiment-wise. Let's backtrack a bit, though. So you mentioned about you know setting up experiments where, um, as you said, Tim, that these experiments are not well-defined. Do you think the main problem there is the fact that if we take a step back from the experiment, that they haven't even set the hypothesis correct out there? And they haven't even defined the the end game of that experiment in their hypothesis, right? So, is there some issue there? I've seen these shortcuts being taken. Yeah, it's, I think I think that comes back down to the fundamentals. And then, without wanting to get too old man ranty about it, it it's I mean, Chad Chad mentioned they're kind of like having our north star metric as, as kind of revenue. And like, yeah. yes, as a business, we want to improve, whether that be revenue or cost efficiency, whatever you guys are going targeting to, and it's very easy to go into like a, a kind of a, an optimizer's little or even a web analyst's um, little silo. We care about the uh, purchase to cart ratio. You know, what, what the drop off is there. We care about these little bits, which are kind of micro shots of there. But then the pressure from above, the people that are paymasters, and as Chad said, it's not necessarily in web, but we're talking web, the, the, the people who are going to give us the grant to carry on doing some more, um, they're not saying, I want to see a more efficient um, cart to purchase process. They're saying, I want more money. Yeah. So you end up then going, well, I know that cart to purchase is where my drop-off happens. That's why I'm testing there. But in the very, the very kind of the abstraction, the bit that you know, you've already taken it away from what the business understands. You then have to go hypothesis. And quite often people go, well, my hypothesis is I'm going to change this <laughs> and that will mean more money. Yeah. And that's kind of, yeah, you skipped a bit. You know how you tend to abstract it to the bit you can actually control? You skipped a bit into the how does more money happen? So I think yeah. an awful lot of the hypotheses, because people have got this. We've been banging on this drum for, for years, saying you should have a hypothesis. Any test without a hypothesis is basically just you know, yeah. ego boosting. Um, but then you come into how do you structure hypothesis? Correct. Yeah, and even when you're given the structure, and obviously... Uh, Craig Sullivan and Michael have got the the hypothesis toolkit. The toolkit, correct. Yeah. yeah, I quite like the um, the adjustment to that which uh, Pav, uh, sorry, Stephen Pav Pavlovich and Conversion.com yeah. um, where they they've added in an extra bit which they say effectively, and I think online dialogue do something similar where they talk about the levers. They, they're kind of taking it a level back than just going we're going to change this. They're going to say we're going to use the lever of fear or we're going to use a lever of clarity so they're not even testing this button is better they're saying better in this case is making it more obvious on page so they're testing around a theme of this is more obvious this is less obvious and they will they are therefore trying to test against that but a lot of the hypotheses i see sent to me when people say no can you go into my test and tell me what went wrong the hypothesis is, is along the lines of we saw that we aren't making enough money we're going to change this thing and we think that people will buy more and it's kind of, yeah. that's either uh, missing several chunks or it, it's, it's wholly inappropriate because it's, it's, you're, you're changing something over here, but you're measuring something over there. 
and you haven't convinced me in your hypothesis that those two things are actually linked. And so I think that's a I think that's a good point that that last bit you just said, Tim, is and I think that's that's something that I, I wish people would do more often is justify why they believe their hypothesis is going to work in the first place. Hmm. Like it's it's very easy to say something like, well, we believe that if we get more people to visit the, this particular page that's further along in the funnel, that it's going to it's going to result in more revenue because people are going to check out. Totally sensible thing to say, but once you run a test, you now have you have evidence of that, and then when you create more tests in the future, your hypothesis should either be based around this thing that you've learned, or you should move on and you should update your thinking. But a lot of people don't do that. They'll run a test with a particular hypothesis, they'll get a result, they'll move on, and then they'll do the same thing that they just did without accounting for what happened in the last twenty tests that they've run. As, as scientists can't do that. The hypothesis that they make is usually based on reams of, of data. They're citing 10, 20, 30 papers before they even run the test in the first place to justify what they're doing. And it, it's just saying a, a simple like one sentence or a single paragraph of this is why we believe it, it's not enough. Like your belief is meaningless. It has, it has, no, it has no correlation to reality. So what, one of the things that I like to do is it's okay when you're first starting out doing um, any kind of experimentation on a website to just have these random hypotheses because you don't know anything. It's, it's yeah. fine. But as you go through, your hypotheses should become more and more refined over time and they should draw on the things that you've done in the past. You should learn from what you've done. But here's the thing, right? So if the optimizer in that company, or let's say hypothetically, it's you that's doing these, um, you know, uh, th these low-level hypotheses to start with, and then you haven't graduated from that. You haven't gone and done, um, you know, more stronger, uh, developed stronger hypotheses. There isn't a check. Uh, you know, there aren't any checks and balances in place in that company to ask for that because there is no knowledge about CRO. There's no knowledge about experimentation. So that person just continues on from that point and just continues in yeah. with those so, bad habits. So that that's, excuse me a second, I'm just gonna close the door because I, I opened it because it was boiling in here. It's now really cold. Um, yeah, so this is something which I've recommended. In fact, I think this is, this was a slide I did at Conversion World in, in my first year when I spoke at Conversion World, which was coming up again next month. If you remember what you did. I had speaking in that one. Yeah, you chat speaking in Conversion World, aren't you? And I think yeah. I did this at MeasureFest when I was on stage there. So I kind of, uh, again, learnt from experience. This was during my time at Maximizer. One of the things we did was we had a uh, did something called a pre-mortem and a post-mortem on our tests. So when we were going into build, we'd done all our planning, we'd scoped it, we'd done the specification. We'd have a little sense check to go, okay, in three weeks' time, we've got no result, and every screaming saying, why don't we go uplift? What went wrong on this test? What what holes have we left? What potentially could we have missed? And from previous experience would go through going oh yeah do you remember that other test where we tracked one metric but actually what we saw was we didn't increase that by much but we massively decreased the other one which was positive to sales but it wasn't the effect respected why are we are we tracking the second metric can we on this test with this client the the other thing we do is a post-mortem so after every single test we wouldn't just go did we win yes or no because win we'll talk about that later on but win is not kind of necessarily going to be the only piece it's yeah. going to be did we did we do what we thought because ultimately the way we frame a null hypothesis is is you know if we meet these criteria null hypothesis is disproven 
Therefore, if null, no change is not, is not the case, then alternative must be the case. And did we, did we meet those criteria? And if we didn't, why? Is that because we set the criteria wrong? So were our hypotheses or the parts that we changed or the things we measured incorrect for what we we're trying for? Or was there just genuinely no effect? And if you aren't doing a post-mortem to, to actually die, you know, drill into what you learned from that test, what you learned about what you can test better next time, then you're missing out. So no. yeah, in a company where you are the only CRO, where you're learning to yourself, then the best thing you can do is after each test is literally take yourself to task for it. And it gets easier if you've got a team with you because you can do peer review on the way in. You, I'm going to put this test out. You show it to somebody who's not working on this client saying, do you understand what I'm aiming for here? What do you think the result would be? And then afterwards you say, here's what I was aiming for. Here's what the result was. And have them question you on it. Why do you believe that number? What else could have happened? Why weren't you measuring this thing that you could have been measuring? And that will make you think, shit, I don't think about that. Um, that's, that's an area I could have, could have improved for next time. And if you either run a similar test or you run a test which is wholly unrelated but think a bit more deeply next time, you should have optimized your optimization. So it, it's one of the, the, the best things we ever did was kind of to try and hold ourselves accountable. We wouldn't ever just go, that one won, I must be great. We'd go, why did that one win? Why was this test better than the last one we ran that was similar? And if we could put our finger on the thing we did differently, we could do it more repeatedly. So we ended up having more repeated success, more regularly. We'd go in knowing there'd be a clear answer. I'm not going to say win because clear answer for me is a win. Uplift on revenue is a win for a lot of people. And I think that disagreement is partly why we see so many tests are not significant. It's kind of, well, to what end? Yeah. Did you answer your question? Yes or no? If you did answer it, positively or negatively clearly outside of the realms of what was just normal behavior that tests a win it may not be the answer you wanted if you wanted i'm going to earn lots more money the answer was it's going to be harder than that but you know it's going to be harder than that you can now plan for that that's a win rather than trying to repeat the same thing well, we didn't get money that time let's try another one let's try another one let's try another one and that's einstein's definition of insanity you know, it, it's just you know, not changing what you're doing but expecting different results and so i think that adaptation the very thing we're trying to do for websites and people's marketing and how we design through experimenting and changing and trialing behavior. If we don't kind of focus that back on ourselves and go, how could I test better next time? We're missing a trick. We're, we're not really being optimizers. The peer review uh, part that you brought up is actually quite interesting because I feel, you know, if you're working in isolation and also we, I think we had this brief discussion earlier, Tim, about, you know, some optimizers, will have this default stance of being you know, arrogant and you know, almost like no at all because they're, they're doing optimization. They have all the answers, if anything. Uh, how do we get people being more open to feedback in that sense, in you know, that peer review of not just even the, you know, the postmodern phase, but the, you know, the hypothesis phase, so that other people can challenge them and ask them questions? This, I'm going to put this across to Chad, uh, Chad in a minute because this, this one, I think he's, he's talked about this a little bit before. But the part of the problem is, the part of, part of the problem is to be accepted in a business. If we're talking about the CR, siloed, lonely CRO or CRO team who's struggling to explain the value they bring, is if they were to go to the board or their line manager or their section manager and go, ah, this was a win because we didn't mess up as badly as we did last time. That doesn't play so well. Yeah. If they were to go to them and say, we have this, this, and this statistical learning, but fundamentally we can't trust this result to the levels that we've set for ourselves, 
we kind of touched on this last time, then somebody going, look, was it a win or not? And this is where kind of the 5% uh, error, the 95% sort of minimum standard and statistical significance come into things because it's become the accepted norm. So we've got some managers to go, did it hit 95% of that? Okay, I'll trust it. Yeah. They won't drill any further into it than that. So the, 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 the onus is actually on the CRO team to know whether it's a trustworthy 95% or a, do you know what? We're probably right 90%, but it's worth another test. The, these factors uh, is part of the politics of the business. Yeah. The perfect situation is you are fully honest, top to bottom, transparent, you explain, everybody gets that you won't win every time, but learning is the win. But that's, we, we talked about fluffy design early on, that's seen as fluffy inside business. And sure. Chad's, Chad, I think mentioned before, is like he likes to get stakeholders engaged and not to gamify it, and not, but to understand partly for his sake, what matters to them as a business. So what he's testing is relevant to them because that will get engagement faster than anything. If you're moving the needle on stuff they care about for their targets, they will pay attention. Yeah. In the last, uh, in the last conversion nations episode, if you, if you haven't seen that, uh, with, uh, Bart from online dialogue and we're talking about like gamifying, uh, conversion optimization, you know, the short term wins with, where it's more like extrinsic motivation. You're trying to get people, you gamify the experience and yes, it'll get you short term results. But ultimately, it doesn't really get you, you know, as what Chad, uh, you know, you can elaborate on this later, talking to stakeholders and getting them bought into the process as well. Uh, Chad, do you want to jump in here? Yeah, I, 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 I kind of want to touch on something actually that um, maybe we haven't talked so much about before, but it, it, it goes to your initial point, uh, Manuel, which was how do we take the ego out of hypothesis creation and out of test design because I, I think that's a really important problem a uh, really important issue I think that the, the first thing that CROs need to do is is understand what experimentation and optimization really is the whole point of it is that we don't know what's going to happen sure. that's that is that is the fundamental uh, the fundamental truth to this if we did know what was going to happen there would be no need for us at all we could just implement things and, and they would work so that's, that's point number one, that we have no idea what's going to happen. Point number two is, is that we as, and I mean, we as like a business, we as optimizers usually have very little idea of what's going to happen. Um, what, what we can do that very few people can't do in the sense of a business is, is maintaining a frame of aloofness where we realize our limitations as, as human beings. Like we know that we have biases and we know that that the, the way to overcome those biases is to, is to test, right? So what I always advise people to do is say, when you're coming up with an idea, never assume that you have the best idea in the room. If you only have one version to choose from, which is what I, I, I usually don't recommend, but if, there's only, if you're doing a strict A-B test, you should be coming up with 10, 20, 30 alternatives before you pick one. You shouldn't just be going with, oh, I had this great idea, time to put it in place because yeah. more than likely it's going to be wrong yeah. so you're, you're testing to self-prove aren't you you're almost like yeah this is the winner i just need right. to prove it and i can move on it's, it's kind of validation for your ego rather than testing to find out if you're wrong or not yeah and sometimes in companies like I've, I've seen people trying to prove a point and just testing it because they think that you know it will give them a higher ranking over someone else because they've done it you know they, they've got got the experiment you know, yeah, I think some of that is human, though, Chad, isn't it? I mean, it's like we all like that win. We all like to feel like I'm better than the next person for this. Um, 
you asked you saying the other day how sometimes you want a word for kind of those tests where you're all convinced the winner's going to win and the loser's going to be massively bad and it's the opposite and those those kind of um, just mentality shifting ones and I, I i chip back in saying i love those tests they they are that slap in the face i need sometimes to go nope you, you, this is why we test this is literally to remind you you don't have all the answers because it's really tempting after you be tempting uh, testing for a while to go kind of go do you know what i'm i'm usually right more often than not and therefore heuristics is a lot faster so when somebody goes yeah we don't want to test what's your best guess yeah. you go, oh, normally this works and sometimes it does you know i've got a pretty good hit rate but you need that slap in the face every now and then to go we test because you only learnt that from repeated tests and there are occasions where there's always that one where you go this normally ends up being the answer except that one time when and it's that one time when that keeps you kind of honest it's, it's like you want those failures to remind you that it's not always do the same thing you always do bigger is always better redder is better than green you know those heuristic kind of tricks that kind of make things fast and easy and frankly easier to explain you want to be tripped up on those every now and then because otherwise you end up not being as open-minded as you want. You want reminding of your biases through the testing and reminding yeah. that you need to plan around those, you know, back on the subject is, is when you're planning your test, when you're looking through your hundred different versions, 10 different versions you're going to pick from, you've inherently biased the test by picking one. You know, you were saying you do. You, you, so we've both had this discussion before. It's kind of like, if you've got strict AB for whatever reason, that's as traffic as you've got, that's all you can go with then fine but if you can have a, a blend that works on we talked earlier about the lever the general idea what you're trying to do if we're going bigger is better then also structure your test to have big bigger biggest because then you're testing to see how far down that size scale and if you're testing that size is the lever you're to a smallest oh no no we don't want to make the call to action smaller we want more clicks okay but if you want yeah. double proof that size is a factor, if all the bigger ones are bigger and it scales beautifully, like bigger, slightly better, better, best, and controls right here and then smaller is worst, is that not a much better curve and proof of your hypothesis that size is a lever and there's a limit to how far you can go before it becomes a negative or a positive than we tried a big button? Okay, well, was that the right size? Was, was bigger better, but you picked the wrong one? That's where test structuring to try and answer the question of do we think this can't be seen enough, which ultimately is what you're trying to answer. And does this being seen enough affect sales is where we started at the very beginning, because that's what we're trying to affect is the North Star metric. Having something clicked on that has no effect on sales won't show on the revenue metric. We've got clicked more. Great. What's that do? Same number of people ended up at the bottom. Mm -hmm. That's you know, key, I think. One of the, um, so one of, one of my favorite people to read is uh, Andrew Anderson. He's a great CRO. He's got a really kind of a confrontational personality. But one of the things that he preaches is this idea of anti-fragility. And the concept of, of anti-fragility comes from a guy named Nassim Taleb. He's a statistician. Yeah, yeah, it's that the, exactly. The, yeah. the more that you, that you essentially expose an A-B test to different variations, the more likely it is that one of those variations is going to be significantly different than all the others. And, and it's, a, it's a concept that makes, that makes mathematical sense um, for a few reasons. One, it's just scale and size and the number of variants. And if you have a normal distribution, you're going to get some stuff on the right end of that curve. 
But the other thing is something that you touched on earlier, which is that we're not just, we're not just trying to figure out what's the best between two variations. What we're really trying to figure out, what our, our goal should be, is can we find the best possible variation? And when we're talking about the best possible, now we're talking about infinity, right? Because there's an, there's an in, for any change, there's an infinite amount of, of differences. There's color, there's text, there's size, whatever. It goes on, it goes on forever. And so sometimes what I like to ask people is, all right, we have two versions that you came up with. Do you believe that of, out of all the infinite versions of this that could exist, you pick the best one to test against? And most people, if they're honest with themselves, will say, no, I just did really the first thing that popped into my mind. Sure. So, so and, and some of that comes to, to resources. Obviously, you can't do you know, every possible thing, but what you can do is think, what is, what is the limit that I can take this? I need to push this as far as I can just curious sort of in my experience making really tiny changes which is what a lot of people do in CRO usually leads to really tiny results it's the big changes it's the shifts that that if you knew if you were looking at the control and the change you would see them immediately that that gets different behavior to happen so that's that's one thing i've observed i don't know if you guys have seen that as well yeah i thought and the talk about fragility it's kind of if you've got multiple 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 ideas on the wall so like i, I was giving the kind of my example is the easiest one to explain like smallest to biggest and even going as far as like let's not make it a button let's make it a hyperlink or let's remove it completely um you know if we want to see if it has an effect getting rid of it is the clearest signal possible you know literally what's the difference between kind of naught and there um but the if you get an outline, the chances are if you've got five, there'll be one that kind of is, is not on that perfect curve. So I'm trying to make sure my hands are, it's not on that perfect curve of slightly bigger, slightly different. One's like up here. And it could be the third one is up here. And you can kind of, to kind of take an assessment saying, well, look, size is a factor because they're all up. And they're all up by enough to say it's different to control, but this one's really up. And then that's when you start to go, well, does that mean that that's the perfect spot? Like literally you can get too big and it starts dropping back off. Or was that an outlier? And that's where you can start to plan your next test to go size is a factor but we only had five in this and we're looking at size related to how we looked at the page originally but maybe if we go into we say size was a bigger factor on mobile 50 percent of traffic was there but after that when we got to biggest that was far too big on mobile it was starting to wrap the button down or it was a third of the screen because what worked on desktop didn't work on mobile so we've actually ended up with a biased test but it at least gives us something to go there's a flag there's a re point where we reach too far so no i mean we won't get the optimal solution on the first test because there are lots of other factors as well as lots of other ways to achieve those factors and the audience is subdivided in terms of the way they'll react to it some people will be a stronger or less strong reaction to the thing you've changed what we're looking at is the average performance for the most part and how that fits against where we are with our average performance currently so the, the structuring side of things of so trying to think about how we could break this down is is more down to kind of what are we trying to shift and if we're trying to shift something like prominence on the page, it's a fairly easy setup. But if we're trying to fix something like, as I said, anyone feel good factor or banner, banner on the home page mentioned a special offer, we're going to measure revenue. It's like, well, that's going to have there's several other places throughout that journey, which are going where it could fall off. So I wouldn't necessarily be treating revenue as the main thing, especially if my special offer that I'm drawing all the attention to is going to drive my AOV down because I've got 20% off. So if I'm promoting that, then there's going to be a drop off in revenue. So it's kind of thinking through all the different things against what you're trying to metric and kind of go, 
how robust is my plan? And it may be that you are limited. You can only do an AB. So what you're trying to do with your AB test and with a big jump, as, as Chad's correctly said, we're not looking for a win. We're looking for a direction. We're trying to verify, does the thing we think we've, we've planned out four tests, this one's the bigger one, this one's the even more prominent one, this one's the bright turquoise one, this one's the one with flashing arrows pointing at it. And the first test to make it as extreme as we can doesn't move the needle. Is our entire thread of investigation on the wrong track? Is making it more prominent, the lever we're trying to test with this set of tests, the wrong thing to be doing? Or is it the right thing to be doing, but what we're measuring is wrong? And if you planned your test correctly for the first test, you should be measuring the right metric. So the chances are you can actually save yourself three or four tests trying to explore this thing you convinced makes a difference because your biggest change, your big lump of, well, this one's not very prominent, let's make it the most extreme we can within the, 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 you know, the limits we've got within this test, with that time, brand, whatever. And if the most extreme one doesn't get a measurable effect, let's reconsider even testing this section. Let's look for a new lever. And this is that learning process and the structuring. And I try to, wherever I'm building a test and I've got the, the advantage of, of kind of multiple variants and tests, is I will have um, paired sets with the test. So I'll have like, uh, here's the one on the right, here's the one that's bigger. So is it the right or the bigger that made a factor? Kind of a quasi MVT within an AB. But I'll also try and have something which is an idea that we want to test in the next set of tests. So my wild card, my most extreme, will quite often have bigger and on the right but also block out so we'll do a big white space change we'll put that in its own sort of power block where we can see that's so we're really drawing attention to that side of the page which i term an accelerator and if that one performs better than even our most extreme on this test the accelerator idea has got some legs we'll do a test around how we accelerate if that one is way worse than the extreme on the right and bigger then i will look at going that accelerator may be emphasized too much. You see this quite often with things like sale prices and with discounts. You can kind of shout about your discount, but you can actually get to the point where all you see is sale and it just, people go, we're blind. Yeah. And, and I so think it was the Debenham site that I remember doing that. Like you went to the website and it was literally sale, 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 red blocks. Yeah, yeah I, I, used that, I used that on my presentation for um, one of the conferences last year. And, and, and that was exactly that. The entire front page was kind of sales. I think I'm going through it, kind of getting people to think through what, what they're trying to achieve. So look at this. They've obviously got sale on. And every single block on the homepage was a red sale banner. So all the category stuff, all the visual navigation was lost. It was just one big red lump. And then I went, and look at this on mobile. And it, was, it just went, I've got it animated on the PowerPoint. And it just goes... And then fine, I'll go on, chat a bit, say, ha ha, aren't they silly? And then a couple of stages later, I get to the, the, the product list page and they've got a massive, great big red hero banner saying, sail on. And I, my line literally on the PowerPoint presentation goes, oh, they should have said something. I've never, <laughs> I hadn't realized. But that, they, they obviously somebody had gone, we've got to sail on, make sure they know it. And by God, you knew it, but you couldn't actually do anything else. It made the site less usable. I don't care if you got 50% off, I can't find my categories anymore. Yeah. Like literally there was no visual cue to say that is watches and that is furniture and that is jewelry because it was a big red banner, white text, which for some people is hard to read anyway, tiny writing saying category. So in the process of selling their, and I guarantee you they didn't test this, but in the process for their short term period of selling, we've got a sale on, they actually made the site net harder to use. 
which I probably, you know, 50% probably incentivized some people to struggle on past that, but it, it, they probably would have done way better if they'd, they'd reduced down how much they'd said about sale and actually helped people get to where they could buy faster. That's, um, that's another point I think is big that a, a lot of people don't think about, especially when you have a CRO that's trying to sort of trying to build this worldview of experimentation in a business. And it's that there may be things that happen within a business like most businesses, for example, believe, you know, if they, if they, they'll have this predetermined period where they do sales or they have some, you know, new product launch that they're trying to structure the business around because they think it'll make money. But there's usually nobody in those sections of the business who are doing true experimentation. There's people, what they usually do is you have some focus group or maybe you launch it in like a set of, of control stores or something like that. And you see the revenue go up for a particular period of time. But very few times do you have someone who goes back and they look at all the data and you can do some really strong comparative analysis, like principal component analysis and regression on your past data, like your past marketing channels and say, hey, when we invest money in TV, we see, a re we see revenue go up accordingly. Most people are not doing this. They're investing the money wherever it is. And if they see any increase at all, whether or not it's, it actually justifies the ROI that's been put into it then they think, okay, this is, this is a good channel. And so that drives home that whatever that, that mindset is like, okay, now we have this great deal. We need to put it on the homepage so people can see it and click on it and get all this cool stuff. One of the things that I see over and over again is that a lot of these campaigns, a lot of the new products, nobody cares. Mm -hmm. Nobody cares about these things. Like what people, people go onto a website with the intent to buy something because usually they already know what they want unless you're in an Amazon type situation where, you know, you have all this upsell or whatever, but most of the time you go somewhere for a reason. Like you're not just going to like people usually don't, well, some people just go to the mall to walk around. Uh, but a lot of people usually go to go in a store and get something specific. No one goes to like Walmart to just walk around Walmart, you know, unless you're 15 years old and you have something to do with your life. <laughs> so, or are you taking photos for the people of Walmart blog? Yeah, right. Exactly. And, but, the, but, but for some reason, that's what people think about websites. They're like, oh yeah, people are just coming here. They don't really know what they want. So I'm going to try to sell them on all these new campaigns that we've got going on because it's not like they had any intent when they came. Yeah. I, I, that target fixation is killer. I think that, that, that hits people with their, um, uh, we've kind of talked about it earlier on people like I've been given the target. I've got to increase revenue by 20%. So every test I do will be tracked to revenue and whether it's related to revenue, whether it's going to actually put more people in the funnel, whether it genuinely has my hypothesis is I keep my job. If I say it's about revenue, that's, that seems to be the under, underlying hypothesis. And it's kind of, sadly, if you do this three or four times, you will lose your job because what you were doing didn't work. And if you aren't, doing a post-mortem if you aren't going that didn't work let's try something else you go let's try it again but harder that's that's not how the force works it's, it's not it's not how the thing gets put together so we're conscious we're kind of getting a bit more uh, down on things again but i think it's, yeah. it's, it's this, yeah, thinking, this thinking through part is is important yeah, it, yeah it, let's uh, let's let's move from this then let's let's talk about so we've talked about this planning issue what are the pitfalls happen in experiment design like so we're moving through let's move right through that journey and then let's circle back and talk about positives, right? Ultimately, what we want to do is give people actionable advice rather than just, you know, be I, I mean, with, uh, it's kind of, obviously, we're talking, uh, Chad and I have been testing for years. You, you've tested for years as well. And we, it's weird that the, mo the kind of the most 
experienced practitioners, the people you hear talking about this, they all kind of come back to the same thing is we're all going, make a big change, make it simple, make it measurable. And people go, well, yeah, but I'm doing this test. I'm going to change homepage one for homepage two and everything's changed. So yeah. yeah, that is a big change, but how do you judge better? Because at that point, it's kind of you've added in so many variables, so many pros and cons. So I think the kind of the number one lesson would be kind of test or plan your tests suitable to what you're able to deliver on, what you can build, what you're able to measure with your tool, with, with your analytics, and build to, suitably, build appropriate to where you're at in your personal cycle. So some of that kind of introspective understanding, again, and then if you get better with that, if you've asked yourself a question, if you then learn, oh, I could do that better, then add another metric, then add another change within the test, then think about how you could have tweaked your uh, variant layout to include a, 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 a pro and a minus to your hypothesis. If you're trying to disprove or prove your hypothesis, your test should have a counter hypothesis in there too. You know, if bigger is better, I also want smaller. If, if price is the factor, here's the big price version, and then let's say if price isn't a factor, here's the we're great, by the way, here's the price version. The opposite to what you're trying to achieve with price is what we think drives people. Because if price loses, but we're great, don't worry about the price, does better. Actually, you can stop in your tracks. And so I think the, the steps towards getting better at this are taking it slower, if that makes sense. It's kind of doing a clear test, learning from that, doing a second clear test that is built on the knowledge that you've learned before, then doing a third clear test that's built on the knowledge from the previous two, and then adjusting how fast you go and how complex you make these suitable to the time scale you've got, suitable to the people you've got, suitable to your, your ability to report on that. So if you are in a position where you've got a team of quants, you've got BI, you've got the analytics coming left, right and center, you've got all the tools and, and you've got a long history of priors and a good understanding, and you are asked a business question about what would this do to profitability on product line three during a three month period when we're pushing that and the competition isn't, then you can probably measure to two or three decimal places whether that's going to give you that little extra inkling more, that little touch more that will give you a competitive advantage during that three month window and it's better to do so. And you can price up how much it's going to cost you to do that work for a three month window, but then it's gone. We're out of sales season. It goes into our bank of things to know for next year, but we can only capitalize it for a certain amount of time. Or you could be, I've got one test I can run this month. What's the most important thing I can do? Well, Business-wise, what's the most important question? Within my analytics, as much as I know, whether it be heat map analytics, asking people, what do I think factors into that the most? And then what test could I do to say, does this make a difference? And if there is a test that you can do to say, does this make a difference, yes or no? You've answered your question for next month to go, this is important, this isn't important. If it is important, do more on it. If it's not important, put it on the back burner and go, what, what else could be? Because we didn't get an answer last month. And that's stacking together, not thinking of each test as a win or not win in isolation and moving on to something completely unrelated is the best way to structure your roadmap rather than your test. And if your test plays a role as kind of in itself, it's an individual unit, but added to the bank of knowledge you're building, it becomes more, more than the value of the individual parts. Then every test is really moving you towards a more educated point. 
So I'd, I'd literally say start from the basics. When I go in and I, I do get called in to kind of do rescue jobs on, on people who've been doing testing and, and getting nowhere and their, their entire campaign, their, their program's under threat. And I get parachuted in to go, we're not doing this right, what we're doing wrong. And more often than not, after I've gone through and tried to unpick all their super complicated tests and the things they stopped and things that had bugs, I'd make them go back to write out a roadmap of five to 12 tests that need to get done that match these business requirements. And I make them do one thing per test, one simple idea per test with maybe two or three variants. We set the time run. When that's done, we move on and test six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 10, 11, 12, whatever onwards. They're all dependent on whether we get results on one to five. If test one is a complete failure, test seven goes because it's the follow on to test one. And starting to make people think about how these all join together to be a piece then takes the pressure off what each test itself has to do. Because I think an awful lot of this comes down to people going, this must deliver or else. So they put all their eggs in one basket, all their hopes, all their dreams. They make all the mistakes at once because this must be a big change. And ends up being they change so much or understand so little about what they've changed, they get no clear result again and again and again until they're out of business. So the structuring part, I think, is business. But how to build your tests is start small, build from. And it may seem really slow, but actually that's the best way to get yourself a stable foundation for the next test and the next test and the next test. Let me play devil yeah. advocate here for a second. So start small, build slow. But small, small in terms of test complexity. Not yeah, sure, sure. But what about then the stakeholders coming back at you and, you know, on promises that you made when you were signing up with, you know, when you were signing on with them? How would you deal with that? Like if I've been, you know, trying out all these big ideas and then I've heard this yeah. advice. Yeah. yeah, and, and it happens. It happens. Um, yeah. I mean, Chad, do you get that with internal stuff? Do you get people coming back saying this is, you know, this is not cured cancer. I'm not, I've not seen multi multi digit increase on my revenue. It's all your fault. Or do you, do you, do you get to kind of be more the, the tail that wags the dog back? Yeah, exactly. I, I think, I think that the very first interaction that people have with stakeholders is so important. Um, and if you've, if you've already messed up the first interaction, it doesn't mean that it's unsalvageable. You can still bring it back, but you have to be in the frame set of the, the mindset of, I, I need to bring it back to, the, to this particular point. And the point that you need to bring it back to is that the way that I like to describe it is that the power of, of testing and optimization is in repeated incremental wins that stack over time. It snowballs. And when you're, when you're presented in that way, then it, it doesn't become about the big win anymore. It doesn't become about the, this is, wow, okay, this one had 10% lift or this one had 5% lift. Now it becomes, it's about the long run. It's about two years from now, three years from now, four years from now, as all of these wins are stacking and compounding. That's where the real power of the revenue is going to come from um, or the real power of the change or whatever it is. Yeah, so technically, like optimization isn't fast and it's not easy either, right? But yeah, it, yeah, it, it could be almost you mistaken in believing that it's fast and easy because they could yeah, print so, money. So this is but this it's is the opposite. This is what I mean. Um, you you asked the question, you know, how do you commit to stakeholders? So like Chad nailed it. If you don't, if you haven't gone in with Dave expecting the wrong thing to start with, you're on the back foot. You can recover it, and there are ways to deal with that. Um, but it's uh, it puts you it puts you in a difficult position. So you may have to do big tests to prove that big tests with all the ideas in aren't any better than a, a planned test or a set of tests. Um, so, I mean, I've worked vendor side, obviously I'm a consultant now. Um, 
one of the biggest wins we had when I was vendor side was actually educating the sales guys so they didn't overpromise. Like literally getting them to understand that it would be uh, multiple tests, that it wouldn't be the number of tests per year that were the metric. It wouldn't be uh, you know, how many client service hours we could burn. The client success team was there at that point capped. Our job was to help them use the tool to its best ability. But once they started selling properly, we didn't get as many deals, but the ones we did get stuck. There were the proof of concepts were like, well, that's sold. And yeah. the difference between that churn or not takes a kind of a business level approach. You know, first contact from what they understand about it. So some of that's kind of asking them questions to start with. What do you understand about testing? Um, I've talked about kind of, um, I talked about this before and then I said, look, break it down to basics. And the way I've explained it, and I'm not, the irony is I'm not a massive football fan, um, but I've talked about how it kind of been. Was you at Arsenal the other day? I was, yeah, for a client meeting. I was at the Arsenal Stadium get, doing selfies and kind of, oh, how did you get to go there? Oh, it's just <laughs> a meeting. Um, but the, uh, I've talked about, like, you do see people who, from the goal kick or from the, from the, the halfway line, kick the ball and get a goal. You yeah. see it on highlight videos. You see quarterbacks scrambling in the end zone, throwing up a massive Hail Mary at the end of a game. Somebody jumps up, catches it, touchdown, game-winning touchdown. You see, and which football are we talking about now? I'm mixing both. We've got Chad on the phone. I actually know more about American football than I do about soccer, to be honest. But you know, that's that's uh, th that said, I'm a Cleveland Browns fan, so argument. Wow. <laughs> um, Wouldn't expect that, but yeah. Yeah, long history. Um, so, but but that's what you see because it's the highlight reel. But actually, yeah. if you look at what wins Super Bowls, if you look at what wins World Cup matches, actually, it's the entire game. The coaching, the training is about passing it to the next high probability pass and passing it to the next and building up, building up. You get a shot on goal that is in a high probability area. Same in basketball. You can hit this amazing three-pointer on the buzzer. But most of the points are scored from under the paint. But passing in, getting in and doing a dull as hell layup to your high probability shooter who is sat in there. And if you're going to play the tactics, you try and get a foul whilst you're going up. So you get the extra, the extra point on that one. You're not sitting there with Larry Bird drilling them in from the three-point line anymore. That, that's the exception, not the rule. But everybody sits there, reads blog posts about this one time we chucked the ball up blindfold and it went in, and they think that's how you test. And it's, you can score. The problem is you can score, and that's what people believe, from that long probability shot. But the money is made, the bank of money, the foundations are made from those boring passing the ball getting it closer doing your three yard gain four yard gain runs getting first down and getting another first down then getting another first down then getting into the 20 zone that's where you start to go doesn't matter what we do at this point we know enough now it would take a hellacious problem to send us back further we're going to get at least three points probably seven so that, was a, this point that uh, chad made incremental wins you know that snowball and you touched upon another issue that people are seeing these, you know, these outliers, essentially, these massive wins, and they are thinking that it's the norm. And I feel it's causing a lot of anxiety uh, in, you know, the optimizer's mind. I, I think you touched upon this in, in a recent Facebook, uh, uh, I think it was a Facebook post. Mm -hmm. Do you want to, like, give us a bit of background about that and then, you know, talk about that? Because I think it's quite useful uh, in this session to talk about that before we wrap up as well. Uh, the one I've posted about the uh, the banister uh, method. 
Uh, I think it was that one, yeah. So, okay, so a little bit of background is, is I posted something on the CXL group on Facebook um, or answered a question somebody had uh, a week or so ago and I kind of almost exactly saying kind of what we've been going over, saying, look, you know, how do you get somebody who who's got expectations how do you get a client on board they all want just can you give me a quick audit and then tell me what the winners will be and i'll come back to you if i need you to help me test and i don't sell like that because that's that's not how it works it can but it's a very very low probability way to get wins so i tend to sell it as phases i'll go in and say there'll be phase one which is literally establishing what you've got working out where you're at looking at your current state of play checking your metrics are right phase two quite often is fixing those the problem you've got is your analytics are screwed we can't tell anything so i'm certainly going to charge you to fix your analytics or get somebody to come in and fix your analytics so we can actually have an accurate baseline but in the process of doing so as we add stuff we'll learn we'll be going through the site like more than you would do on a ux stuff because we're going in and checking every possible use case we'll actually start to be sketching out ideas that we can test but now we're in phase three we're able to start testing because we've got you know the, the numbers we've got our baseline we've got an understanding use case we've hit a bunch of ux issues where we see holes in the data we've got a target list that's got some high probability just because we spent a bit of time practicing and kind of that's where i kind of by that point the client's bought in you've identified a bunch of issues you will have in the process of doing this knocked out some just basic bug fixes which will be costing the money and that normally gets you enough money to justify it so a lot of people came back to me and message me on LinkedIn and, and Facebook and said, that's really good can you help me with my one so some guy kind of contacted me and I spent about an hour and a half on the phone on Monday and he came in going I've done really well with his clients but I've kind of and he, he showed me the kind of the kind of the idea of what he'd gone how he'd worked out his, his priority matrix matrices how he'd worked out his uh, um, step conversions how he'd got his targeted his week by week and asked a few questions and asked a few more questions and I kind of went all right and I looked through and by the end of say an hour and a half of just kind of going, look, here's where I'd go with this next. Here's some tough questions to answer. He was, he'd gone from, I'm really keen. I think I could do a good job to this client to going, oh God, they're going to sack me. I'm going to be in trouble. And it's like he's new into an engagement. So I felt really bad because I'd just seriously rained on his parade when he'd actually done an awful lot of really good foundational work. So I posted back into this, the, the group saying kind of, it's all very easy to look at what people who've been doing this for years and making these mistakes for years and think they've got it nailed and it's so intimidating because I will never get that good. When actually the people you're talking to, and I, there's people I talk to where I, my, my stats are, are sufficient, which is damning with faint praise. They're, they're okay, but I, I know I need to get better on some of that pieces. But there's people I escalate to and ask questions all the time. And I do spend time so I'm going, I should know this by now. And I've been doing this 12 years to 10 years got dedicated so i was trying to write, put a post up go bear in mind the people you're you're looking at you're looking at their highlight reel they're telling you the end results of mistakes they've made once twice three four 15 times before to learn the lesson they're now giving you so don't think that you can't get to that stage because they're showing you the results of making lots and lots of mistakes and learning from them and actually, you've now got an advantage because they're giving you some pointers on a stake you could now avoid or at least look for, which they never knew. They hit that brick wall, not even know it's going to be there. And it was really a kind of encouragement post. And the, the thing that prompted it was a Seth Godin blog post, which said the Bannister method, you know, Rogers Bannister you know, just passed, broke the four minute mile. But he didn't st start out by going, I'm going to run as fast as possible. 
he yeah. started out by going, I'm going to run it one second faster than four minutes. And he worked out what the splits would need to be to run four, four miles, you know, what split per mile would be to get in just one second under. And then he got pacemakers to work with him, to run with him four, to help him learn to run those splits. And then he ran the four minute mile. Yeah. But that process took a couple of years to get to. And everybody remembers the four minute mile being broken. And he's, you know, to this day, you know, died at 88 and people are still talking about 50 60 years later but that was a conscious plan worked through we identified the problem and took it and broke it down to its component stages and then finally ran through the whole lot but that's a classic example of people wanting to go i can run as fast as him and it's like well four minute mile now is kind of club level you know <laughs> they're busting through that by miles so i think they've taken a full minute it's like three minutes four or something like that right. mile time. but but that milestone was broken by somebody who took apart the thing. He broke it into its component parts and went, how can I make each little piece better to add up to a better whole? Yeah. So through, uh, to wrap up three pieces of advice from each of you, and then we'll uh, say goodbye to our viewers after this. I think it's been quite, an, uh, quite a, a heavy session of anything. A lot, a lot of advice wrapped up in, in there. But I, like for me, I think it's all about you know, humility and uncertainty you know, being humble and knowing that you don't have all the answers, being able to approach people smarter than you and being able to accept that, that knowledge over there. And also, you know, trying to stay away from the headline, you know, the, the uh, as you, what did you call them? The, the highlights reels, right? Because they tell a picture that isn't actually the truth. Uh, so Chad, what do you want to uh, give as your uh, three pieces of advice to our listeners and viewers? I would say, so the first one is, is something that you kind of already mentioned, um, which is that when you're, well, something that Tim already mentioned, um, which is that when you're looking at people who talk about conversion optimization online, people like us, people in these different groups, is that not to boost our own ego, but we're in that really like the top 1%. We're the ones that are talking about this and really pushing it forward. So comparing yourself to some of these other people, these experts is not good because they're, they're at the top, you know, just being a part of the conversation means that you're already much better off than probably 95, 96% of, of other people in the field. Um, the second thing that I think it's important to come away from this, uh, from this, this session is that when you're thinking about testing, Everything should be done based on what the business needs, not what you think is going to work. Right? That's that should be the starting point. It's not what are the cool tests that I can run, but what is the what is the essential problem of the business that I am trying to solve? Um, the third thing is something that I that we we kind of sort of danced around on, but never gave it an official name. It has to do with with long term planning, and it's looking at your test over a longer period of time, not in terms of a week or two weeks, but in months and years. And this is something that is going to culminate. It's not going to explode. It's gonna be a year and a half or two years and you're gonna look back and you're gonna see all the amazing stuff that you've done. So don't be discouraged if you're not getting results after a week or if you're not getting results after two weeks, because it's gonna happen eventually if you just keep at it. Yeah, cool. And Tim, to finally wrap up with your three points, uh, keep it short, please. <laughs> yeah um so I'd, I'd kind of reiterate some of the points i've made already i'd say um if you're gonna if you get into a, your, your experiment planning think about what 
you're changing and what metric that would be measured by and basically set your test up as simple as you can to answer that question don't overcomplicate. just go here's the lever here's what that should affect here's how i'll measure it and and learn what hypothesis means and hypothesis not does not mean i've got a bright idea it will make more money win loss there's breaking it down to the parts helps i think you know valid points about asking people but i think understanding that the the knowledge base that you're building is part of the result so if you are going to structure a test and you don't learn from it then you've not actually got the most value from that test possible and so i'd say my point about doing a pre-mortem what could go wrong based on what we've learned before and a post-mortem not just did we win or not but could we done it better looking at not just did we score the goal but how well did we pass the ball could we do that again could we narrow the odds for our next test by passing it down to closer to the goal for the next test or are we going to put the ball back on the halfway line and give it another kick because if we got a goal last time and we do the halfway attempt next time chances are we'll miss next time and the next doesn't and then that comes down to that last piece is when you are trying to explain to people that what you're doing is part of a process it's an ongoing iterative process and they don't like that or they don't get that or they demand results sooner than is possible you need to learn how to explain what you're doing and to a degree handle that objection because if they won't let you work in a way that allows you to make the most from what you can do with testing if they won't give you the time to research what you need to do you have to let them know that the effect you'll have on the business will be minimal or in fact if you account for cost and time negative because if you're spending this money to get improvements and changes done and then you don't let the person or the people who are doing the changes and improvement do it the way they need to you will not see results Great, thanks for that. So uh, thank you to all the viewers and listeners watching and listening to this uh, podcast. This has been Conversion Nations episode five uh, with Chad and uh, Tim uh, talking about experimentation design. Uh, my name is Manuel da Costa from Effective Experiments. If you want to join us on another Conversion Nations podcast, uh, drop me a line uh, on info at effectiveexperiments.com. We'd love to have you on here. Uh, with uh, discussing a relevant topic. Um, but for now, it's goodbye from me and goodbye from the rest of the guys. See you soon. Bye. You've been listening to Conversion Nations. Don't forget to subscribe to get notified when we release new updates. Conversion Nations is brought to you by Effective Experiments. Want to make experimentation a core part of your business? Request your demo and let us show you how we can help you grow your testing program.